Thank you, Andrew. Good mindset for all of us to adopt as we come to the Word of God. Say, Lord, your Word is my guide, my leadership. I will believe. I will seek by your grace to obey. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 4 this morning. Colossians 4. It's been long time, 17 years, uh, since I had to write a resume, so I'll admit up front, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm kind of thankful it's been that long, and I did some research as to um, the way people write resumes this week, but it had nothing to do with me. Uh, it had to do with introducing the text that's in front of us this morning. Um, in the past, having looked to hire different people for mainly school things, I remember looking at resumes and just being like, I'm not sure I can write like this. I'm going to need some help if I ever have to do this. And uh, maybe you've been there as well. Uh, so I started looking this week and going, well, you know, what kind of words do people use when they write resumes? And uh, there's lists out there that say, hey, you want to get your resume to the top of the stack? Use these words. Use words like improved, trained, created, resolved volunteered, influenced, increased, or decreased. I don't know which one's the better one there, or, or ideas. Uh, I think back to some of the resumes I looked at, and they say things like, you know, talented professional, uh, energetic team player, right? Uh, agent of change. That one's interesting. Uh, gifted communicator. And, you know, as I, I've read those things, and maybe you've been in the position where you're like, well, I've got to describe myself, and I'm not sure I'm really comfortable with that, so how do I do that? And, like, all of a sudden you have this, like, moment where it's like, I don't really want to do this. That's a hard thing to go, how would I represent who I am and what I'd like to do? I, you know, it gets over the top very quickly. I remember reading resumes that would say things like, I'm looking for a position to fulfill my life calling and bring my talents to help your team. That just strikes me as strange, strikes me as interesting. I suppose it's one thing if you're writing it, but it's a different thing if you call for a reference and someone says, let me tell you, this person is very talented. At least as a believer, that comes across very differently to me when someone else looks as a reference and says, they're really gifted. They're a great team player. Wow, that's awesome. But I want to remind us as we come to a unique section of Scripture this morning that what we're reading is not someone personally describing themselves. I suppose we could look at it in one way as a reference, but I'd like to take it even further than that. And I think it's important that we get it, particularly in a unique section like this, that in essence, this is spirit-inspired resume. This is God-given biography, if you will. It's not extended. It's not, you know, here's a biography that is pages and chapters. It's simple verses. But the Spirit of God inspiring the Apostle Paul takes several individuals here, some we know well, some we know very little about, and says, let me tell you just a little bit about Onesimus. Let me tell you just a little bit about Epaphras. Let me remind you of Luke or Demas. And he goes, person after person after person after person. And I say it's important that we remember that this is spirit-inspired biography because this is a kind of section that I, I think sometimes we're inclined to just kind of read through and go, well, there's a lot of people who know each other. I don't know them. I'm not really sure what to do with this and kind of keep going. What's the next book in the Bible to read? But God gave this 
kept this, preserved this, not just for the Colossian believers, but for us. And I mean, clearly in the text, it even says, you know, not only are the Colossians supposed to read this, but make sure this letter goes on to the Laodiceans as well so that they can read it. And there is a benefit broader than just the initial Colossian audience of what is here. And we are part of those who are supposed to benefit from this. And you know, those of you who are we here week after week after week, that often it's like, okay, verse 7, what does it say? Phrase by phrase by phrase. Verse 8, what does it say? We're going to handle things a little bit differently this morning and look at things categorically and say, hey, notice this theme across each of these individuals. We may next week go back a little slower and go, now let's look at what just this individual, because there is value. I mean, some of these people, it's like, here's three descriptions of this individual, and man, there's really good spiritual challenge there. But today, I want us to look at the whole and see a few themes, both this morning and this evening, that show up across all of these believers that I hope are true, would desire would be true, in our church family as well. I would remind you that this is instruction from God by life example, we might say. We could call it instruction from God by life example. We get this in life. I've shared with you before, Dr. Ola used to say this all the time, a message prepared in the mind reaches the mind. In other words, it's intellectual. Like if you just want to reach people's minds, here's intellectual distribution of truth. A message prepared in the heart reaches hearts. So if we want to base it on emotion and appeal to emotion, you can touch people's emotions. But then he would say, but a message prepared in the life touches life. Where when you get the truth and it's how you think, it's how you feel, but it impacts how you live, that example is powerful in teaching us. And I think we all could look at life and go, you know what? There is example in life that has just profoundly impacted me. We say it in other ways like this, your walk talks, right, and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks, saying how you live matters more than what you say, because sometimes we're really good at claiming things, at saying things, but not living things, and to go, you know, how we live matters. There's instruction by life example. Another way, again, we say it is more truth is caught than is taught. And so as we read through some of these individuals and draw out themes, I would ask you to, just before God, as His Spirit works, go, could I be described that way? I mean, uh, we heard the choir sing, May the Lord Find Us Faithful. We'll look at that more this evening. But there are a number of individuals that are listed here as faithful, faithful. I don't know about you, but that's one of the descriptors by the Lord's grace. I would like to be true. I mean, would we not want to be in the Lord's presence someday and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, reliable? In an age where faithfulness is rather underappreciated and kind of disappearing, to go, no, I, I, I want to be faithful. So that said, let's dive into the text, and again, we're going to do this categorically more today than verse by verse. I want you to notice with me first their unity in Christ, their unity in Christ. We've seen this a number of times in Colossians, and in fact, I'll give you the second point because 
Again, we've seen this in Colossians 2, but we're going to look at their unity in Christ, and then secondly, we're going to look at their, the diversity of the people that are listed. Because I think it's edifying for us to consider and to value in our midst both the unity and diversity that's represented in this text with all of these different people that are listed here at the end, that if we are kind of lazy in our Bible study, we miss how different these people are and yet how they're together. For example, let me remind you just here as we approach the end of the letter that the author and the audience have never met. This writer and his readers have never seen each other face to face. And yet Paul clearly has a heart for them and a deep connection with these people, and it is true because of Jesus. He made that clear right at the outset of his letter back in verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 1. He said, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. He says, we've heard about the fact that you've trusted Christ. We've got something in common. We're praying for you. And then he proceeds to write them. They live in different cities. They're facing different struggles. But they're unified together in Christ. Couldn't help but think this week of brothers and sisters in Christ that we have around the world. We talked Wednesday night a little bit about our need to pray for brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. To go, you know what? We share something common where our hearts should go out and want to pray, but we live very different lives than they do right now. But say, you know, my heart is for them. I can go before the throne of God and pray for them. Here again, we're looking at people who are unified together in Christ, even though their life circumstances are incredibly different. Paul mentions person after person after person here, and yet what joins them together in their unique life situations is Jesus. We can observe their unity at least two ways in the text, perhaps more. One is the simple use of the word brother, something that, again, occasionally in our world today, we will speak and go, oh, that's brother so-and-so or that's sister so-and-so. More often, I think, in today's language, we're like, that's my church family. We're, we're, we're family together, trying to emphasize this closeness that we have because of Jesus. Again, you see the word brother show up as an example. Verse 7, Tychicus, he's a beloved brother. He's this fellow servant in the Lord. Or verse 9, Onesimus, he's this beloved brother. He is one of them. He's one of the Colossians. The other way that we see this is not just the word brother, and I won't take the time to track each of these through the text, but Paul, inspired by the Spirit, keeps adding the word fellow. We're fellow laborers. We're, we're fellow servants. We're fellow prisoners, emphasizing we're in this together, even though they're in very different places. Again, our language may have some similarities, but may also have differences. But there ought to be a sense, as we look at the people that are here within our church, as well as other churches. Again, my mind often as we've gone through Colossians has gone to uh, families of our missionaries, churches of our missionaries to go, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people I want to pray for. These are people that I want to care for. I think it's so needed in our day to talk about unity in Christ because we live in an individualized, privatized American Christian mindset. My faith is mine. I'm not sure I'm comfortable sharing with people what I'm going through and what's going on. And, and it's like, I'll, just, I'll, I'll kind of keep that to myself. 
to realize these people experience a very deep unity in Christ. And in our day, we want to make sure that we don't strive to live apart from the body of Christ, but see the beauty and value of its unity as it cares for each part. Again, it's something that we'll touch a little more this evening, but you can't read through this letter, the end of this letter, without seeing love and care expressed over and over and over and over again. And, and not all of it is like deeply profound. Some of it is wonderfully regular. It's the kind of thing that happens every Sunday as we gather and you walk in and it's like, so how was your week? How are you doing? I'm praying for you. That's the kind of stuff we're seeing. Like, hey, so-and-so greets you, Right? I was talking to one of our teachers recently, and they had had a training thing, and uh, I guess a friend of mine from high school was involved in that, and they're like, hey, Matt sends his greetings, right? It's this commonality to go, hey, we're unified in Christ. They're going, hey, we're greeting each other, but there is this deep unity because of Jesus. I want us to see that highlighted by then, secondly, the diversity of people that are listed here. You remember Colossians 3, 10, and 11 with me? comes into play so clearly here. Back in Colossians 3, verses 10 and 11, as we talked about identity in Christ and the fact that when we're saved, we're supposed to be striving to represent the image of Christ in our lives. We read this, we've put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. Christ is all and in all. The apostle, again, inspired by the Spirit, takes all of these life divisions and goes, you know what? Beyond all of those things, the gospel has changed us. Jesus has changed us, and he is everything. Christ is all and in all. Again, in some cases, it doesn't eliminate the unique identity. We'll see that as we start to work through the diversity here, okay? But say, yes, I'm living out my unique life, but I, I am doing that as a Christian now. I have a higher calling that allows me to be unified with other believers. We're going to look at this diversity in Christ a number of different ways, and the diversity of these people a number of different ways. Very simple level to start. Remember their diversity geographically. Remember their diversity geographically. Again, we could go around the room here and say, hey, where are you from? On any given Sunday, we've got people from different states and at times different countries that are represented in our church family that are here. That's a neat thing. But again, our diversity of fellowship should go way beyond that. It should not just be limited to, well, who, did, who shows up at Bible Baptist on Sundays? To go again, I've got brothers and sisters, those I should be closely connected with, and again, by way of application, perhaps through our missionaries to go, we're very different. You look here in the text, you have some like Onesimus and Epaphras who are from Colossae. But yeah, we're same area. That makes sense. You know, for a lot of us, we're like, well, God placed me in Westchester with Chester County, so that's why I'm here, because where I live. And that at its very basic level, sure, is a way for unity. But what we see in the text transcends that. Again, in verse 9, Onesimus is one of them. Verse 12, Epaphras is one of you. But then we run into people who are from a host of whole other places. We could look at John Mark as one example, verse 10, Marcus. To say he was there all the way back in Antioch on the first missionary journey back in Acts chapter 13. He's traveled, he's seen different things. 
Or we could go to Aristarchus and Tychicus, who were there on the third missionary journey. We picked them up in Scripture in Acts 19 and Acts 20 while they're traveling through Macedonia. Here are two individuals who now, as things have continued on, and Paul's even gone to be arrested, are still there. They're still engaged with brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have an inclination that, oh, well, they visited the Colossians at some point. They would know them. But there's still this unity, this care, this love present. Just like for us today, we've got brothers and sisters that serve the Lord that we're connected to in the Philippines or in China or in Myanmar or in Peru and all sorts of places around the world. We live in a modern world, so I think we're almost inclined to take the supernatural nature of this for granted. Like in our world today, we can hop online and communicate with people who live on the other side of the globe very quickly. We can get on an airplane and within a day or two, be just about anywhere. But realize what's taking place in the text here, this diversity geographically, spreads across the known world of that day. I mean, apart from maybe touching like Egypt, down into Africa, you've got people in Rome, you've got Jews that are involved, you've got people who've been in Jerusalem, you go through Macedonia, and people are touched all through this list with incredible diversity geographically, but they're unified because of Jesus. Beyond their diversity geographically, notice secondly, their diversity culturally. We talked about uh, Colossians 3.11 already where it says that Jews and Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised. Here in the text, you see that in living colors, both Jews and Gentiles are serving the Lord. Paul particularly highlights three men in the text that are Jews because of their uniqueness. We work our way through Acts and you think, wait, we did that last year, studied our way through Acts. And over and over, when we find the Jews interacting with Christianity, it's not a good thing. Who's going to jail this time? Right? And yet Paul here is showing the gospel has advanced, Jesus has reached. Here are three individuals that God has touched that are serving along with the Apostle Paul. So chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, he says, here's Aristarchus. Here's Marcus or John Mark. Here's Jesus who even because of the familiar to that name and its association with Christ, seems to go, just call me Justice, a Latin version of that same name. Again, Hebrew name would be Joshua. Greek name would be Jesus. Justice would be the Latin version of that. So here are three individuals. We're told they are of the circumcision, and they only are his friends in the kingdom of God. They are the ones who God has used to provide comfort to Paul whereas so many were often opposed to the idea of Jesus and the Messiah. Here we find Jews serving along with Gentiles because Christ is all and in all. We want to see the same thing true here. To go, we want a diversity of people. To go, look at what the gospel does. Beyond their diversity geographically and culturally, consider the diversity socially. Their diversity socially. We don't know the life setting of every individual on this list, right? I probably should have given you a quiz at the outset of the service and let you do the introduction and go, so tell me what you know about justice, like not I-C-E, but U-S-T-U-S, right? Or, or tell me what you know about Aristarchus. Hopefully, we'd get a little more on that one because we did go through Acts somewhat recently. It's like, I, I don't know a lot. And there are, again, there are individuals we know really nothing about, but I think as we do consider what we are given, what the Spirit of God says we do need to know, you can see quite a diversity here socially. First, think about it this way. You have two prisoners in this list. Paul, 
and Aristarchus. In verse 10, we read Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Here's, here's my guy who's with me as we're imprisoned. And then Paul, again, notes his own bonds in verse 18. Remember my bonds. So here are two men who are imprisoned because of Christ. They've been faithful to Christ. They've fulfilled Christ's own words about suffering, persecution, and they're in this list. But think about who they've been joined with. Again, maybe it just stands out to me as I keep turning all these people over in my mind this week. But in addition to these two prisoners, you have a medical doctor. I mean, if we look at that societally today, we're like, whoa, these are very opposite ends of the spectrum. But we're told, here's Luke, this loved physician, verse 14. The Spirit of God could have just noted that it was Luke, but we're given additional information related to his occupation. We're not given every job of every person on this list, but we're told, hey, here's Luke, and he's sending greetings. He's this loved physician. In fact, it's interesting, as we go to the rest of Scripture, uh, we read Paul's words later saying, only Luke is with me. Here's a prisoner. Here's a doctor. Because of Jesus, they are together serving him. Again, I see that as a wonderful diversity socially of what God has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ here within the text. We have a slave, Onesimus. Again, he's not noted in great detail here, but you come to verse 9 and we're told, here's Onesimus, this faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, and he's going to tell you about me along with um, Tychicus there in verse 7. But we go to the book of Philemon and we begin to realize, here's who Onesimus is. Here's this one who wants for whatever context, and we talked through some of the different contexts in which bond slaves uh, happened in that day a while back, but to go, he was a slave to Philemon. He ran away. And during his time in Rome, he's come to know the Lord as Savior. Paul says, during that time, I, I, I became his father, pointing to his salvation, and now he's being sent back. Again, one of the prison epistles being, here's the letter to Philemon. We've got Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon going together. And here's this letter. And again, while we're not given the detail here in the text, we know here's Paul and Aristarchus. Here's also Onesimus. Here's Luke as a doctor. And we have this incredible diversity that God has driven in bringing these people together because of their salvation by Christ and their commitment to serving others in Christ. Beyond their diversity geographically, culturally and socially. Fourth, we want to begin looking at their diversity spiritually. Their diversity spiritually. And this is one we could pretty quickly overlook, but I think it's worth mentioning. You see their diversity spiritually first in its maturity. Chances are there is diversity of physical age here. We won't spend a lot of time on that, but there is clearly difference in spiritual maturity because you have people like Onesimus who've come to Christ very recently. And then you've got Paul, who's an apostle, who's been traveling through the known world through three missionary journeys, imprisoned multiple times, suffering beatings for the name of Jesus Christ, uniquely called by Jesus himself. And so you've got, if you will, from fledgling stages of spiritual salvation to an apostle who's been very faithful, who's been imprisoned and suffering for his faith. Again, I think that ought to just challenge us implicitly you know what, in our unity in Christ, and our diversity, we don't ever want to look in our church or any church and go, well, you know what, there's great unity there. 
I mean, everybody who's saved is 70 and up. Been saved 40 years. It's a blessing. But to go, you know what? Here's the individual. They've been saved two months. So here's the diversity all the way through because God is at work. He's building his church. There is a spiritual diversity even in their maturity. I would also remind you that diversity spiritually is not just in their maturity, but it's also in their ministry longevity. It's in their ministry longevity, and we'll finish here this morning. There are those in this list who will disappoint. There are those in this list who have already disappointed. I love that. It's a wonderful reminder, albeit a challenging one. Failure is never final, and not every story is a success story. So, for example, one of the persons who sends their greetings in verse 14 is Demas. Here's Luke. Only Luke's with Paul. He's sending his greetings, and Demas is sending his greetings too. And yet, unfortunately, as we go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we're reminded that Demas forsakes Paul. Why? Because he loved the present world. He departed. He left. He's going, you know what? I value other things. The cost is not worth it anymore. And so while positive here in the text right now, we know where the story goes. And I will say very honestly, we don't know where the story ends. Maybe Demas comes back around. Because another individual who's left was also a quitter, also a lever. Marcus, John Mark. What an example of recovery. In fact, I love the 2 Timothy 4 passage. We're not there this morning, so I won't preach or go there in detail. But if you look at 2 Timothy 4, 10, and 11, who's back-to-back there? John, Mark, and Demas, just like we're looking at both of them here. And in 2 Timothy 4, we're told, yep, Demas left me. He loved this present world. But bring Mark. He's profitable to me for ministry. You remember Mark's story, right? John Mark's story? It's Acts 13. He joins the first missionary journey, leaving there in Antioch. That missionary journey is going to go from Acts 13 all the way through Acts 14. And yet we're like a third of the way through Acts 13, verse 13, and John Mark's like, I'm out. And he bails. And we might read that again and go, well, okay, that could be understandable. When we get to Acts 15, verses 36 to 41, did Paul have a problem with it? Absolutely. Barnabas is like, hey, we can take John Mark. Paul's like, no. He bailed. He left to the point where, again, and God sovereignly uses this for his own glory. We don't even have to get into a debate like, is Paul right or is Barnabas right? Okay. Barnabas was the encourager. He kept working with them. And by the end, Paul's saying, hey, come back. But God uses both. But they divide. Like it was that big of a deal. But now we're in Colossians 4 and we're talking about John Mark positively involved in ministry because his failure is not final. I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but we walk through this and say, hey, there's supposed to be unity in Christ. In the midst of all of this diversity, we're to pull together in ministry for the glory of God, not just with our church family, but even broader than that. But so often we can let differences become reasons to divide, can become all kinds of controversies. You know, again, I, I hope you take courage or encouragement from the example of someone like a John Mark. Maybe that's where you find yourself and go, you know what? You're right. I'm not faithful. I'm not reliable. I do need to step back in. 
go, hey, you know what? Grace can always keep working on us. We need grace to keep working on each of us so that we're unified together to bring glory to the one who saved us and brought us together in the first place. As we continue to work our way through the list, we've done so this morning, but also as we will tonight, I wonder who you identify with. Can you have that first kind of base level identification to go, yes, I am a believer. I should pursue unity in Christ because I've been saved by him. If we can't start there, that's the first need. Not so that, well, I can be a part of the church, but ultimately so I can be right with God. Say, I've sinned against him. He sent his son to die on the cross for my sins, to rise again. I'm asking him to save me. Beyond being a believer to say, so am I serving alongside in unity with others in spite of our differences? Maybe you say, well, I'm struggling a little bit. I need to be on recovery like John Mark. God saves and uses people from all walks of life. It should be a beautifully glorifying to him, beautifully glorifying thing for him, but also for the good of the church. Let's pray. Fathers, we've started into this closing text of Colossians. I pray that you would take the example of the lives that are here, their interaction with one another, and challenge us. That, Lord, we would be unified through the work of your Son, that we would take the different giftings, the different life callings that you've given us and allow them to be a means of bringing glory to you while keeping us unified because of Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.